This is Emmanuel Today, taking steps toward God's possible in your life. On today's program, we continue in the Championship Secrets series with a message entitled, Know and Remember Who You Are, with guest speaker, Susie Larson. Let's join Susie right now. Well, we've been in this series titled Championship Secrets, and the one that I want to talk with you about today is this, Know and Remember Who You Are. Know and remember who you are. Otherwise, you'll play not to lose rather than playing to win. If you forget who you are and whose you are, self-preservation will take over, self-ambition will take over, and they're the antithesis of kingdom life. But when you know who you are and whose you are, you play to win. You live out of the love of Christ. And this is what's true, and I want to say this carefully and graciously as I can. Every single one of us battles insecurity at one point or another, every single person. And if, they, if someone tells you that they don't, they may be blinded by their pride because they do. But we can overcome insecurity. In fact, in Christ, Jesus, we are seated with Christ. Insecurity for the believer is actually an illusion. We can feel insecure. Everybody battles with a feeling of insecurity. But we're never insecure because when you're seated with Christ, it's an unshakable place, and the devil cannot rob you of your place, your rightful place in the heart of Christ Jesus. Amen. But here's what's true. If the devil can't touch your worth, he will do everything he can to doubt, make you doubt your worth. Because if you doubt your worth, you will ha have a series of choices in your life that are self-sabotaging that keep you from your destiny. When rejection, insecurity, and inferiority remain unchallenged within us, hear that again. When rejection, insecurity, and inferiority remain unchallenged within us, we'll repeatedly sabotage our own destiny. Therefore, we must be ruthless with thoughts of insecurity. Jesus paid such a high price for your soul, for your worth, for your identity. And when you are in Christ, he says, you are precious and you are honored in my sight. The sooner we get this, the sooner we'll live the life that God has for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you. Truly, you are the guest of honor today. You're the guest of honor. You're the reason we're here. We are second. You are first. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, in the church, all over the earth as it is in heaven. There's no inferiority, no insecurity, no rejection in the kingdom. May we live out of your love, O oh God. Heal us in the deepest places of our soul. Awaken a new capacity to understand who we are because of who you are. Lord, I can't say anything worth anything unless you breathe life in and through me. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be right from your heart to theirs. In Jesus' name, amen. On the stage, you see two tables. One represents the orphan table. One represents the heir table. Now, in the literal sense, you read scripture, you know God cares deeply about the orphan. And I love that the church is being mobilized to care for the orphan. But I'm talking about a spiritual sense, an orphan mentality versus an heir mentality. But the truth of the matter is, before you're in Christ, you are a spiritual orphan. You are homeless. You are wandering. And orphans beg and plead. Heirs pray and believe. Orphans beg and plead, heirs pray and believe. And here's what's true. God loves every single person he ever made. Every single person he ever made, he loves. And every single one of us bears his image. But the thing is, love doesn't save us. Grace does. For by grace we are saved through faith, not of ourselves as a gift of God, not a result of works, so nobody can brag about being saved. Nobody can be prideful that they get a place at the table of grace because it's grace that saves us. He loves us, 
But there has to come a point where we transfer our hope to him. We move from our self-striving ways to trusting that it begins and ends with Jesus. We come to a place where we say, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Louis Giglio says, your sin doesn't make you bad. It makes you dead. And while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. And when you come to that place where you say, I'm transferring my hope to the living God, Jesus, I surrender to your lordship. I'm following you. And his spirit takes up residence in your soul. You're an heir. And what we tend to do is vacillate back and forth between these two mindsets, whether we're performing well or not. We fall down, we see ourselves at the orphan table. We rise up and have a good week, we're kind of proud of it. We see ourselves at the heir table. But there exists in the spiritual realm a massive chasm between these two tables. Once you were dead in your sins and in darkness, he reached down from on high, rescued out of the kingdom of darkness, and put you into the kingdom of his dear son. And you're filled with the spirit of God. There's a chasm. On your good days, on your bad days, you are still an heir of God seated at the table of grace. Amen? Jesus himself said this from John 8. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son and a daughter, they belong forever. Isn't that good news? You belong forever. I mean, may the miracle of our salvation never be lost on us. He says, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Hallelujah. We vacillate in our mindsets based on how we perform, but God never does. Our choices do matter, and there are consequences to our choices, but that's a different sermon. Today, I want you to know that in matters of identity and eternity, it's all Jesus, baby. Jesus won your eternity. Jesus won and paid for your identity, and he paid a high price for it. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen to this, who's blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing. If you spent a year studying that passage, you would be richer for it. What does it mean that he's blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing? Another passage says he's given us his spirit. One of the reasons the spirit of God resides in us is so we can discern the things he's freely given us. Man, what gets me out of bed every single day is the passage in Scripture that says there's a day of account both for unbelievers and believers. Those who have rejected Christ will go before the great white throne of judgment and will have to give the account for their sins because they rejected Christ's payment for their sins. We won't have that kind of judgment day, but there is a judgment day coming for Christians where we give an account for what did we do with our time, our treasures, our talents, our passions. Did we spend our lives making it all about us or were we so secure in the Father's love that we could make it all about him? There are storehouses untapped because people are living in perpetual selfishness, insecurity, self-preservation. But he's like, all of these resources you could never even, it's like you hold a Dixie cup and the ocean remains. There's, the heavens are pregnant with blessing that God wants us to apprehend and let loose all over the world. But we possess his promises by faith. And so it matters that we see ourselves as heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, that we have a place at the table of grace. In other words, it's time to move everything about who we are to the air table, how we live, how we pray, how we give, how we talk. We are heirs of God. And it's not like Jesus grabs us by the arm and yanks us from our place at the table when we fall short, show up late, or say too much. I think that's pretty good news as well. Romans 8, 14, 16 says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The miracle of salvation, when Christ is in you, your hope of glory, Holy Spirit takes up residence in your soul. I always say that heaven knows who's who in the zoo. 
It's not like the angels are looking on the earth trying to figure out who's acting like a Christian and who's not. Like that one, that one. Because there are plenty of Christians who behave in ways far beneath them. Nothing like a Christian should act. And there are many non-believers who behave better than some Christians. But heaven sees a light shining in our hearts. That's what scripture says. We have this light shining in our hearts. So when heaven looks down on the earth, there are people walking around with darkness and people walking around with light. The light of Christ shining in our hearts. When the spirit of God takes up residence, the spirit of God speaks to you and says, this is the way, walk in it. So hear this again. For those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. That's how you know you belong. He speaks to you from within. The spirit you receive does not make you a fearful slave. Rather, the spirit you've received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, you can cry. We cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Isn't that amazing? The spirit of God, and you've got the spirit of, in, in, of God in you, testifying, you are mine. I am yours, you are mine. The banner over you is my love. We are God's children. Now, if we are his children, we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share his sufferings in order that we may also share his glory. This is true. Jesus said, in this world, you'll have trouble. But he said, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world, which means you're going to overcome. When you hear a gospel preached that says uh, that you should get everything you want in this life and tie it up in a nice bow, that's not the gospel. Jesus promised you're going to have trouble. But he says, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us later, which means every trial, if you endure it by faith, will pay you back with interest. Nothing will be wasted on you because he is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he says he'll do. Championship secret number one, know and remember who you are. If you have the spirit of the living God within you, if you said yes to Jesus, you are an heir, and that status will never be up for grabs again. Hallelujah. Well, I want to look at two women, Naomi and Hannah. In the book of Ruth, we read about Naomi. Her husband is Elimelech, and he had two sons, and they lived in Bethlehem, and there was a famine in the land. And so Elimelech took his wife and two sons and moved to Moab. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that says this move was directed by God. In fact, it would not have been because the Moabites were direct enemies of the Jews. They practiced things that were totally defiant to Jewish practices. For example, they sacrificed their children to the gods. They practiced open immorality. They defied the living God. God would not have led Elimelech to take his family to Moab when there's a famine. In fact, Elimelech kept himself in the small story. My family's hungry. There's no bread here. I'm going to the land of Moab. He kept himself in the small story, but you know what? Bethlehem means house of bread. If he would have been a big story guy, if he would have seen himself in the bigger story, the kingdom perspective, he would have said, God, not only is my family hungry, my people are hungry. We live in Bethlehem. We are your people, and Bethlehem means house of bread. We don't have no bread, so have we missed something? Are we in sin? Are we out of rank? Has the enemy fashioned a scheme against us? God in heaven, show us what we need to see. And then bless us, your people. That would have been a big story prayer, but he didn't do that. He led his family to Moab, and eventually he died. His sons married Moabite women, and they lived, the husbands lived about 10 years, and then the husbands died. And one scholar says, Elimelech trade a famine for three funerals. And this is so often what we do, is we grab for ourselves. We're in the small story. We want relief more than we want redemption. So we grab a quick fix, often with catastrophic results. We want a break, and God's like, no, I want you to have a breakthrough. But sometimes you've got to persevere for such things. So here's Naomi in a foreign land as a widow, as a grieving mother and a grieving husband. And women in those times 
needed men in their lives. They were so vulnerable without a brother, a husband, or a father. Women would be trafficked, sold into slavery, abused, bullied off their land, die of the elements. So not only was she a grieving mother and, and a wife, she was in a foreign land. She was very vulnerable. You can only imagine the terror and the trauma of her soul. She's ready to head back to Bethlehem, and you don't get the sense that it's to reconcile with God, because at this point, she's still saying, God has stretched out his hand against me. And this is what so often happens as we go out of the protective boundaries of God, and then we blame him for our troubles. Her daughters-in-law are about to come with her, and she says, are you going to wait for me to get married, raise sons, and for you to marry again? No, no, that, you don't have to do that. It would be better for you. Go to your small town, to your small G God, and marry. That's the best you can hope for. Now, a lot of people I've heard even talk about that story, saying how noble that was of Naomi. But I think if you scoot a little closer, you see the condition of her heart. And I'm not coming down on her because I probably would have felt the same way. But she has such a wrong perspective of God in her pain that she's saying, go back to your small G God because that's the best you can hope for. Because anything you can get from the small G God is better than what you can get from the capital G God because clearly he has stretched out his hand against me. And I know for me, there have been times when I was uh, battling Lyme disease and our medical debt was through the roof, which totally confronted my insecurity because I felt like a debt to society. My husband's working three jobs trying to keep us in our home and food on the table. And I'd fast and pray that we'd have a breakthrough, that I would get healed and our medical debt would somehow miraculously go away. But I'd rise right up from that place and go, we're never gonna get out of this. And I remember the Lord saying, your own words are bearing witness against the very things you prayed in your prayer time. And while there's all kinds of grace when you're hurting and suffering, that doesn't mean anything goes when you're speaking out of your pain. What you say about God, what you say about your circumstances matters. Well, Orpah goes back to her homeland. We never hear from her again. But Ruth refuses to leave Naomi's side. Ruth was impacted by Naomi's faith over the decade. Ruth could have, if she wanted relief, if she wanted a break, she could have gone back to her homeland. But she saw something bigger at play here. And you have to think about this. Ruth, a Moabite, willing to travel with Naomi back to Bethlehem. Again, the risk of making the trip, they might have died in the trip. They were really subject to the elements, to abuse, to violation. But imagine once she got there. She's no dummy. I mean, I know there's no gossipy people in this room, but you know there were gossipy Israelite women going, okay, who's this outsider who married one of our own? No way are we letting in our circle. Can you imagine her showing up with Naomi and the women whispering? The kind of grit and guts, talk about a champion, for her to say, none of that matters. I will follow blindly. I will go to a land that I don't know. I will risk rejection for the capital G God because anything you can throw at me doesn't compare to what he has for me. Amazing. She's one of my heroes, and this is what we read in Ruth 1, her famous response, verses 16 to 18. Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I live. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord punish me so severely if I ever allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Naomi battled something I call destructive disappointment. Have you ever been there? I so have, and this is how I define it. Rehashing and rehearsing your losses and unfulfilled expectations in a way that damages you and causes you harm. And consequently, the relationships around you harms them as well. You rehash, you rehearse, you rehash, you rehearse. 
Naomi was saying, God has left me empty-handed. But for the heir of God, he never, ever intends to leave us empty-handed. So if your hands are empty for a season, know that he intends to fill them in due season. Naomi battled destructive disappointment, but here's what I learned when I've walked through my own disappointment is whenever there's an opportunity for destructive disappointment, there's an invitation to a divine appointment, always, because that's what God does, that's who he is. Championship secret number two, stay out of the smaller story. Because you're an heir, you can be assured and should be convinced that God is always, always, always writing a bigger story with your life. Hear this, your story is always bigger than you are. We'll come back to Naomi in a minute, but I want to take a look at another woman. We find her in the book of 1 Samuel. It's the period of the judges. When the Israelites were in dire straits, political corruption ran amok. People lacked godly leadership. It was a tough time. Here's what Dr. Warren Wiersbe says about that time. As he often does in Israel's history, God began to solve the nation's problem by sending a baby. Babies are God's announcement that he knows the need, cares about his people, and is at work on their behalf. The arrival of a baby ushers in new life and a new beginning, and babies are signposts to the future, and their conception and birth is a miracle that only God can do. To make the event seem even greater, God sometimes selects barren women to the, be the mother, as when he sent Isaac to Sarah, Jacob and Esau to Rebekah, and Joseph to Rachel. So Elkanah, he has Hannah as a wife, and he absolutely loves her. Hannah is blessed because she's loved, but she feels cursed because she's barren. Have you ever felt that way, where you're blessed because you're loved, but you feel cursed because God's not giving you what you want at the moment? Well, I don't know why Elkanah stayed in the small story. Maybe he prayed for children, for his wife. I'm sure he did, but I think he gave up too soon, because what does he do? He goes and gets an extra wife. I told my husband, if you ever get an extra wife for anything I'm not giving you, I will break your fingers. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, my word. So... I do honor him as the leader, but I did say that to him once. But anyway, Elkanah marries Peninnah, which I'll call her Penny. And if your name's Penny, forgive me, because she irritates me, but I know you're great. I'm sure you are. But anyway, I don't like this girl that much. But so Penny is able to just spit out children like a Pez dispenser, you know? She's just <laughs> like this. And not only that, but she totally puts it in Hannah's face. Now, I want you to imagine Hannah's loved but she feels cursed. She's got, she loves her husband, but she's absolutely brokenhearted because Hannah keeps, or Penny keeps having babies. And the Bible says, lorded it over Hannah. So you know that she not only had babies, she's kind of holding the baby up in her face, sticking her tongue out, just acting like a little sassafras. Oh, man. Or maybe you're single and you don't want to be single. And you hear another woman say, if I have to pick up one more pair of boxers. And you're like, I'd give anything to pick up boxers if they came with a husband. But this is just what's true, is the blessings of others will constantly test our hearts, won't they? There was such shame and barrenness, and to have your husband's other wife rub it in your face seems almost intolerable. And each year, Elkanah traveled with his family to Shiloh to worship at the temple. And as part of the celebration, they'd have a feast. And poor Hannah would sit there and get her portion. But then Elkanah would give Penny and all the children, all that food. And you imagine this is another opportunity to rub it in Hannah's face because she was just devastated. She would break down and cry. And even her husband said, am I not better than seven sons or ten sons? She was devastated. Her arms were empty. Her womb was empty. Her heart was broken. But what does she do with her anguish? She goes to the temple. 
she bows down and she cries out to God. And how does Eli, the high priest, respond to her? If you've read this story, you know. What are you, drunk? That's what he asks her. What are you, drunk? You've been drinking? Now, side note, Eli's sons had been drinking in the temple. Eli was seeing her through the filter of his own pain. And so often, I think our harshest judgments come out of our own pain, don't they? He, he assigned motive to her that really belonged to what was happening in his story. But she was so humble. No, sir, I've just got anguish in my heart, and I'm crying out to God. And when Eli realized it, he said, may you have that which you've asked for. Hannah rose up. She had a gift of faith. She ate. She was happy. She got pregnant. And this is what's so important about this. Your heartbreak and disappointment are meant to inspire passionate prayer. And when you take your broken heart to God, you will begin to see yourself in the bigger story. Well, Dr. Jack Hayford has this incredible insight about the bigger story that God was writing through Hannah's prayer. Listen to this. Amazing. God uses the burden of Hannah's heart to bring a surprisingly larger solution to the burden of his own heart. He was taking the burden of Hannah's heart to bring about the larger solution to a burden of his own heart. Barrenness was not only Hannah's condition, but Israel's condition as well. Isn't that amazing? It was a season of spiritual need, and with little prophetic activity, God sought a voice to speak on his behalf to his people. Hannah could not know that her intense intercession for a child was moving in concert with God, bringing her a son, but also bringing forth the will and the blessing of God for a whole nation. As she entrusts her longings of her heart to God, he moves on her behalf, but also advances his larger plan through her at the same time. Could your intense intercession for the thing that's breaking your heart be moving in concert with God to bring about a bigger story? Absolutely. And if the enemy can do what he can do to keep you thinking like an orphan, you'll become self-aware, you'll start to blame yourself and wonder why, and you will start to get so self-focused that you've lost sight of God. But what if, let's say you've got a prodigal, you remembered you were an heir, and you prayed from your heir status, and you said, Lord, not only am I praying for my prodigal, but I'm going to pray for every single prodigal in the church today. Bring them back home, Lord, and raise them up. Raise them up to be today's evangelist. I'm going to make the devil sorry he ever messed with me. What if, let's say, your marriage is hanging on by a thread. Instead of becoming self-aware, looking for a break, looking for relief, you're bent on a breakthrough. So you start saying, Lord, not only rescue my marriage and use us to rescue other marriages, but I pray for every marriage hanging on by a thread. Do a miracle in their lives in the name of Jesus. What if you're hanging on by a thread financially? Hallelujah. If you're hanging on by a thread financially, the small story temptation is to get a third job that God never asked of you, to grab for yourself, to stop being generous. That's small story mentality. But what if you step back and say, I'm still going to sow seeds. I'm still going to walk by faith. God, bring redemption to this story so I have a story to tell. I'm telling you what, God is nearer than we discern, he's better than we know, and he's always writing a bigger story than we can see at the moment. But it's hard to see when our hearts are breaking. It's the enemy's hope that you will stay in the small story because if you for a moment remember who you are and whose you are, you in the midst of your heartbreak will become downright dangerous. Both Naomi and Hannah faced desperate loss and disappointment. But look how differently they handled their pain. Naomi grieved and spoke bitterly. Hannah grieved and prayed passionately. I remember walking through my own season of disappointment and heartbreak, and I couldn't figure it out. The math didn't work. I did this. How did I not get this? I watered the field. I sowed seeds. I believed in faith. I did all the stuff. And you just need to know that formula in the church has to go. There's no perfect formula to get God to do what you want to do. There are good parents who have prodigals. 
There are godly people who take care of their health, who get sick. We live in a fallen world, and if you think a formula works, you'll not only not comfort someone who's suffering, you'll judge them for their suffering. Come on. There are lots of people in the church today who did right and didn't get right. And maybe you're one of them. Maybe your marriage isn't what you thought it would be or it ended and you didn't want it to. Or your kids aren't going the way you trained them to. Or your finances are a mess though you faithfully tithed and paid your bills. Or you lost a job that you loved or a spouse or a house. And it's tempting to ask the why and the how questions. And during that season of my life, I was always 10 minutes away from the ditch of despair. And I remember crying out to God and the Lord whispering, you can ask me any question you want, Susie, but those questions are killing you. You need to ask a better question. Like, what's a better question? And these are the three he gave me to sort through my disappointment, and maybe they'll help you. First one is, what is this disappointment saying to me that's not true? Second, what is this disappointment saying about me that's not true? And what is this disappointment saying to me about God that's not true? When you sort through your disappointments, you remember who you are and whose you are, and you will stand in faith while your heart is breaking, because there's an end date to your suffering, Jesus promised. Championship secret one, know and remember who you are. Championship secret number two, stay out of the smaller story. You know, in times of despair, we forget that we are heirs. In times of favor, we forget why we're heirs. When you walk humbly with the Lord, and you trust him, and you remain teachable, and you take his word as it stands, your life will start to bear fruit. Your life will start to be marked by power. And people coming behind you are gonna notice that there's a blessing of favor on your life. And the temptation is to think, life's good because I'm good. And someone's gonna wanna know, how did you get there? How is it that you walk with such power and confidence? And you pray, things change. The temptation is to answer, well, I don't wanna brag, but I'm going to just for a moment. Um, I do devos, devos most of the time. I give to the church, well, like once a month, but I do. I don't gossip much. <laughs> and the enemy wants you so, so, so much to claim your heir status, your heir status based on your performance. He loves it when you claim glory for glory that belongs to God alone. He loves it because there'll be a day that you blow it and you will blow it. And when you do blow it, he'll be right there in your ear going, you miss devos again. You overate again. You overspent, you overdrank again. I want you to sit there and I want you to think about what you've done. And so what do we do? We sit here and we think about what we've done. But you know what? When you rehearse your failures and you've rehearsed your missteps, you reinforce an orphan mindset. When you rehearse your failures and your missteps, you reinforce an orphan mindset. The enemy's going to tell you when you've blown it, you sit there and you think about what you've done. And when he does, you've got to hear Jesus rising up in your defense going, no, 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 don't sit there and think about what you've done. Sit here. Think about what I've done. Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Today. Please be sure to tell others about this broadcast that they could enjoy next week at this same time.